Hi, and welcome to Plants Hi, I'm Joram. Wow. <laughs> um, I'm Tegan. <laughs> Joram is excited or just rude? Hard to tell. You told me like three shows in a row that I'm always coming too late with my mm. own introduction. So I'm like, not this time. There will be no, no gap. There will be like a negative amount of, um, of pause time. So, hi. Hi. <laughs> Um, your introduction says disgusting worms. What's that about? I just went outside um, with the family and we had a stroll through a park and suddenly we saw this like very spooky looking tree, just like the branches of the tree, but no leaves, nothing and completely covered in what looked like spider webs. Mm. But it wasn't spider webs. I mean, I've seen pictures on the internet from like spiders um, covering complete trees uh, in spider webs. So I was like, oh, maybe it's like some weird local spider species. But mm. then I had a closer look. I was crawling with bugs, with like caterpillars. Um, yeah, and then mm. I looked it up and um, I figured out it's the ermine moth um, that's doing that, uh, specifically the caterpillar. And um, that was really, really like they make these pockets of silk that they cover the trees in and then they eat pretty much all of the foliage of a le of a tree. Um, and the tree recovers, like it's not dying from that. It's like a very short period, but a very intense period of, of leaf eating by these moths um, or by these caterpillars. Um, and yeah, it just looked looked disgusting because the silk bag was completely filled with crawling worms and you could actually see them like reaching up and eating the leaves, which was sort of interesting to see because we so often talk about like caterpillars munching on leaves, but often you don't really see them in the act, but there it was extremely visible. Um, They're very hungry caterpillars, which is kind of um, topical. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the author of The Very Hungry Caterpillar just passed away this week, last week, something like that. Yeah, yeah, I've, I've seen something. Um, I think we talked about this in the past, right? That it's not really as common here in Germany as it is in, in like English-speaking countries to read this as a child. Mm. Um, but, I mean, that's interesting. I've seen those like completely infested trees before in Germany, in Berlin. And I always kind of assumed that like you always see them on trees that look quite dead. And to be honest, this is a bit stupid of me. I kind of thought the tree was already a bit sick and therefore couldn't defend itself. And therefore that was the one the caterpillars chose, which might be a little bit true, but no, probably they just ate all of the leaves and that's why it's looking yeah. really poorly. Like it's, yeah. yeah, they munched everything. Although they're saying like, I read, I read up on it and it was like that the trees, um, they sprouted again in the same year even. So that often mm -hmm. by fall, you can't tell that the tree was ever attacked. But like the trees can... Why, why would so many, like... If I'm a caterpillar, what's the benefit of me going on the tree where there's 8 billion other caterpillars instead of choosing my own nice fresh tree? Like, I mean, is it the safety in numbers thing for like, not like no bird's going to come and eat you because they're just terrified by the web tree? Or like, what's the... They are staying where the eggs are. So, um... But what, that those billions of caterpillars are all from one hatching event or like... I imagine that like, like, hey, that's a good tree. I, I, I mean, yeah, I, I imagine that many moths must deposit their eggs at the same at the same tree, um, because I, like, they can't rep like the, the the caterpillars can't replicate yet. Like they they have to go through the puppy stage and then they can lay their eggs again. But this takes time. Um, so like this this um, outburst, I think it comes from all of the caterpillars in the same tree and the advantage for them is that they are protected from 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 um not herbivores but from like attackers because of their silk nets because they all spin these nets birds have a hard time getting to them and also other mm. pests really can't get there they're protected from the rain 
And as it turns out, even from chemical agents, I mean, that's probably not why, like how they evolved in the first place. But even if you wanted to spray them, um, which is like if it's not if it's not croplands, um, probably not a good idea to just like spray nilly willy because they don't really cause much harm. Um, mm. They just look disgusting. Um, but the spray can't even penetrate the webs. They, um, it's such a yeah. But if they've got like a really hard web, you can just like poke it in and then just spray, and it would like fill up like a balloon. <laughs> yeah. Probably take that caterpillars. We we discovered that we had them in the garden as well. Now, um, my my wife was actually chopping down like some some branches from the apple tree because we had some of them in there. And when you do that quick early enough, then you can contain the infestation. But if you do that too late, then they somehow spread. Which again brings from like how do they spread when there's just a few at first and then many later when they only lay the eggs when they're. When it's later, this is, this is why know. we plant people. I think. Yeah. I mean, we have the same thing in in Australia. We have these caterpillars, but they're they're like big ones, and they're kind of furry. They have like sort of bristles, and they're called spitfires. And as the name suggests, they spit, <laughs> and they spit like something nasty that can like I don't know blind you or or cause uh. a lot of pain. And they, I think the the bristles are also sort of like almost fiberglassy if you rub off on them. So they. We have these like kind of friendly furry caterpillars where you can stroke them and they look like fake moustaches and, you know, as a child you pick them up and you let them crawl all over you. And then we had these like evil terrifying ones where like you'd cut them off and hold them at arm's length and just sort of like drop them over the neighbor's fence. So I, I don't know how my parents <laughs> got rid of that. I assume that's what they did. <laughs> just, like, In the fire. Remove. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Although uh, sometimes, like you, I mean, burning wildlife is never a good idea. But with some <laughs> of these caterpillars, or uh, yeah, it's, speci- it's specifically bad because, like, the fibers, they don't, like, are not destroyed by the fire. They just, like, turn into dust that you then inhale. <laughs> the fire only strengthens us. So, um, yeah, don't don't burn caterpillars. Not, not a good idea. Yeah. But so, like, it was, it was, it was a weird. Uh, experience of being disgusted because I really hate bugs but at the same time really fascinated about the biology of them and especially as I saw them like nibbling on the leaves it was like oh this I, I've heard so many stories sort of from the other way around like from like the plants what they do when caterpillars nibble on them um, this is this is like a really like Yoram is now the example of how we should treat teach our very young children I mean that's the thing right like you can sort of make a decision to find something disgusting or fascinating. And there are some sort of like almost instinctive disgusts that we have as humans just because of, of safety. But there is this fascination. And I think like with children, it's quite easy to switch them on the path of, of science yeah. and interest as opposed to like, ew, the worm is slimy. Yeah, my my son has no sense of disgust yet. Um I mean, he's just like over to just barely over two years old now. And I think um, that's, I have no idea how normal it is, but he's like, like he wants to touch all the bugs. He wants to um, touch everything. Like he, sometimes like when his hands are dirty, he's like, oh, my hands are dirty, but he has no problem like touching worms or bugs or like weird looking plants. Like he wants to touch like stinging nettle all the time. And like, look, I mean, I'm all in favor of you making the experience, but at the same time, I'm going that's to tell you that it hurts. Day. Yeah. and <laughs> that it's not fun um but then he's like he looks at me like looks me straight in the eyes and like grabs a leaf and i'm like no <laughs> watch out like you're gonna get stung i mean most of the 
things are on the stems anyway or underside of the leaf. So mm. so far he he missed it, but barely. But I've, at one but point, but now you just, just like he doesn't believe you anymore because you told him he was going to get stung, and he's like successfully then, grabbed it several times. Then he'll have a very um, interesting day at one point when he learns the truth. I have memories of going to the botanical garden in Potsdam with some friends and their kid, and the friend was like repeatedly saying please don't touch the cacti like it's gonna hurt you please don't touch it and you know two minutes later there was a screaming child and he'd like touched one of those ones with the really thin spines that you like can't see and yeah it was just awful it's like but again like this is the the child of two scientists i think there's sort of a (laughs) desire to to learn the hard way unfortunately (laughs) that's always the fine line that you have to find between like protecting them from harm but also letting them make their own experiences and figuring things out and sometimes getting mildly burnt or stung or or, or poked with something um mm. as long as it's not like long lasting bad effects um it's sort of important but at the same time i don't want my child to get hurt so like i'm, I'm like look don't do this you will hurt yourself and then a minute later he'll hurt himself um because he had to do this so yeah it's it's not always easy with figuring out the right way. But I try to give like room for experimentation and figuring stuff out. What have you been up to, Tegan? Oh, so many things. So we podcast ah, yeah. last week on <laughs> Wednesday, right? Yeah. Okay, Thursday. Thursday I got my first vaccination. Thursday was a good day. So I um yeah, I got my appointment. I walked myself over to the vaccination. It was like one and a half hours walk away because you know, I booked too fast and there was nothing open close to me yet. Um, and I got there just super early, which was really, really good because I went in and I was like, hey, I'm super early, but, you know, I want this vaccination. Can you give it to me now? They gave it to me while I was sitting and waiting for the 15 minutes like recovery just to check you don't faint. I heard them announce that they weren't giving any more vaccinations that day. Like they had a couple of people fainting during the day and like it was the first hot day in England so far um, this summer. So I suspect that might have been it, but they were, because like, you know, it could be a batch problem, like something contamination, they just had to stop. So like, I was completely thrilled. Like I was like, you know, maybe my arm will fall off, but also maybe I'm vaccinated. So who cares? Um, As long as like the vaccine makes its way into my bloodstream from the muscle before the arm actually falls off. I think we're good. It's my left arm. Like, what am I doing with that? But seriously, um, I was super happy. And then like after that, I went to a pub and sat outdoors with some friends and went for a walk. And then the next day I went to Kew Gardens for the first time, um, which was just amazing with a different friend and just like, it's been sunny. It's been amazing. We can go outside. I mean, I know vaccination doesn't mean that I'm immediately, you know, what's the word? Immune and, <laughs> Immune and, 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 safe and protected. I'm still harm. being careful, of course. I'm still wearing masks, but just like it feels very hopeful at the moment. Um, and yeah, anybody who's not yet vaccinated, hang in there. Hopefully it'll come around soon. We know there's a lot of inequality about who has access across the world. But yeah, like, yeah, it's it's it has been a nice feeling in these last few days. And going to queue for the first time was just so good. So amazing. Like, yeah, really yeah. <laughs> happy times. And I just I, you know, they say that you get um symptoms from the vaccine and I don't think I had any but like the day I got my vaccine I was just so excited I walked 28 kilometers like I was just like walking around I walked to the vaccine then I walked in the sun and I was like walking with friends and then I was like you know what I'm just gonna walk home I was just like so like amped up and like manic and excited from having the vaccine that then I was like my feet really hurt like is that is that a side effect of the side effect of 
<laughs> vaccination. But yeah. You better call the authorities so they stop the next batch as well yeah. because of like feet hurting from <laughs> the vaccine. Excuse me, I have blisters on my toes. Is that um is that my bad shoe choice or is that um yeah, Pfizer? Um yeah. But yeah, very good times. Um yeah, I took lots of photos at Q as well, which has been the first time I've sort of, you know, photographed as well for a long like everything just feels really Nice. Yeah. <laughs> there's, no, there's no way. Hopeful, I think. This is like the hopeful episode where... Yeah, I can really relate to that really mu- uh, a, a lot. Um, now, like, I was the first one in our little family who had a chance to get vaccinated. and But now my wife had her sh- first shot as well. And um, it wasn't clear for a while if she could get vaccinated or not. And then um, she took like pu- pursued multiple routes. And first it looked like everything will just like fizzle and there won't be anything like being on a waiting list forever. Um, talking to like another thing, but they didn't respond for a while. But then like this week, all of them responded. <laughs> um, and so she just p- t- took the f- very first available thing. And that was yesterday and um, or two days ago. No, I think yesterday. And yeah, ever since then, it's just like, we know like it takes some time and it's like fully kicking in and so on, but we just know now it's going upwards. Like at least mm-hmm. we are protected and we can still, we are still being safe around other people and we're not taking any major risk, but we know at least like we are fairly safe from really bad COVID uh, cases. And so, yeah, it suddenly opens up everything for, for us, like not in, in a literal sense, like, like all of the shops and everything opens up for us again, but uh, although in Germany as well, but um, it's just like in our minds, it's just like we're so hopeful for this summer. Like, yeah, uh, until and that, April, like I was like, this summer is gone. This summer is like we'll just be indoors like last year. But no, now I have a hope that we can actually do some like mild activities away from other people, but still live something. Yeah, I think that's the thing like the realization of like, oh like what had become my normal mood that's not my normal mood that was like a year and a half of like not being able to hug anyone because I don't know anyone in this country mood as opposed to yeah like this kind of feeling of of relief it's it's been nice um Mm -hmm. yeah yeah it's um it feels good uh, this week I mean I still there's still enough work to do and everything but also like the weather like i i met a friend and we were sitting in like the evening sun in a park and um yeah something as mundane as that felt so incredibly nice to do um so yeah look this this summer starts begins nice here in for, for us at least i had a meal at a pub and the meal was nachos and the cheese on the nachos was somehow liquid and orange and I've had a stomachache for 24 hours. And yet somehow <laughs> it's all good. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I can't wait to have like a meal at a table all that's not my free. own kitchen table. <laughs> like, yeah. Oh, yeah. We, we still only have takeaway. And like, I'm not complaining. Like, it's fine. Other people have it worse. But sitting down at a table at a restaurant with friends that you like and eating food that's delicious. Can't wait for that to happen soon. Eventually we will have that. Uh, and love to everyone out there who's still waiting for their vaccine we hope it comes through soon yeah. for you all yeah it will i hopefully it will it will accelerate now and be more and more available and yeah yeah i mean that's always <laughs> the bittersweet thing right we know that like we got it now we're really happy about it but at the same time you know that in germany i think we're like 
20% double vaccinated and just barely over 10% or around that. Maybe maybe I'm 10% off, but not, not, not much more. So it still leaves at least 70% of people who didn't have a chance to get either first or second, like no first shot. And that's in Germany. And that's in Germany, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I like. I hope we will get the vaccine to everyone um, for pretty much everybody's sake. Like, it's a very selfish thing to do to provide everyone with the vaccine because then, yeah, mutations and so on might spread less and all this stuff. So I just hope that we get like, yeah, I don't know, become a little bit less protective of our like intellectual property. Um, to avoid sending out like having other people manufacture uh, vaccines but that's like that goes too far and too far away from what i actually know stuff about so <laughs> shall we do plant science yeah let's do plant science my favorite plant and this week it's my turn to talk about my newest favorite plant, which is unsurprisingly something that I saw at Kew Gardens um, on <laughs> Friday. I'm cheating and I'm using my lived world experiences and just relating them straight back into the show. So my favorite plant is Araucaria araucana. Um, it's commonly called the monkey puzzle tree, also monkey tail tree, piñonero, puin or Chilean pine. And it's a big conifer plant that's found in Chile and on the west of Argentina. And I think it's even the national plant of Chile. Um, and it's it's a conifer. So this is like these sort of big woody plants, which includes things like firs and cedars and cypresses and, and pines. So you can kind of get a bit of an idea of the visual just based on that. Um, as with conifers generally, it's it's got this also super kind of old looking yeah, it, it looks like it's a, a, a fossil and it's also called a living fossil. And in relation to that, I want to mention that the family that the monkey um, puzzle tree belongs to, it's actually the same family as the Woolamy pine, which we've featured mm. previously on the show. It's this Australian plant that sort of lived in um, dinosaur times and was only recently discovered. And the reason for that is because, like, Back in the day, there was Gondwana land, which was combining Australia, Antarctica, and South America. So it quite makes sense that these South American trees are in the same family as Australian trees, because like way back when they were all kind of clustered together and sort of evolved in that area. Mm -hmm. So apart from like having this kind of cool living fossil look, the the nice thing about the monkey puzzle tree is that. It looks really cool and it looks really hardy. Um, it's got these like thick, tough, kind of triangular scale-like leaves. It's almost like snake-like in the way it looks. Um, you could also say it looks a little bit like a succulent, um, maybe a crustula, but also like this echevaria. But instead of having like the sort of fat, plump, rounded leaves that you find in like echevaria succulents, it's sort of... Um, hard leathery leaves and very pointed ends but stacked on top of themselves in this very um, geometrical triangular like even way that goes on and on and in the Kew Gardens they said that this is kind of why it's called the monkey puzzle tree because the way these leaves are stacked so tightly and so sort of rough and aggressively it's a puzzle that even a monkey couldn't work out how to climb that's that's what they say it's just like it's there's nowhere to put your your feet in there 
because of the way it's looked, it's it's quite popular. So it's actually um, planted as a garden plant. And I was kind of interested. I was looking at the images of this on Wikipedia, and some of the images look like the plants that I saw at Kew. And it's sort of very bushy. So even from the base, there's sort of different um, arms going up with leaves and there's no real trunk that you could get up. But some of the other images had this more straight up and down trunk and only branchy bits higher up, looking like a sort of traditional tree that a child would draw. And I wasn't really sure if this was a difference in growth um, in like maybe a native habitat where it's, it's, it's hardier, maybe it's losing those old leaves more rapidly um, compared to sort of growing in an easy garden sort of environment where it can keep the young leaves. I'm not really sure what the the reasoning behind that is. There was something in Wikipedia that says that the leaves themselves can live for 24 years, which seems excessive for a leaf. Like Yeah, because usually for sort of these evergreens, right, they... They seem to be always green, but the needles itself themselves they they have a shorter lifespan. Like they eventually fall off and then regrow, so they rarely don't make it to twenty four years. Usually much shorter. Yeah, the other, another cool thing about it, apart from the way it looks, which I think I mean you should definitely go and have a little little quick look at this um, on Google Images because it, it's pretty impressive. It's a very it's a very bizarre looking plant. Is that it also um, makes these pine cones. Um, and they have nuts, so it's it's previously been eaten by indigenous people in Argentina and Chile, and some people have even said that it might have a potential to be a food crop. So um, the the trees can produce like thousands and thousands of seeds a year. Um, it's easy to harvest because the the cones drop to the ground. So and it is edible. The downside of that is that it takes 30 to 40 years to mature to even yield a seed, um, which might discourage people from planting them. Although once you've got it, it can live to maybe a thousand years old. So like, bit of work to start with, like really. And I I would not want to be the farmer of this independent of the timescale because it's just, it looks like it's covered in barbed wire or razor blades. Yeah. Like doing any sort of work in your like in your trees must be like very painful or requiring lots of like strong protective clothing so that you don't get cut i don't know if the are they actually sharp or do they just look terrifying because in the images they look like they would cut you i mean they're like they're not going to cut you as but like I, they were sort of yeah hard and sharp looking but not sharp as a needle but just sort of like tough like sort of leathery and and yeah yeah did you touch it could you touch it i didn't touch it i don't know if we're allowed to stroke the trees in the garden i didn't i didn't touch it actually okay I mean, you can tell me later if you really touched it you can <laughs> when it's not on record um the other thing that might make it a bit annoying to sort of grow it as a crop is that they do also mast so this is like this thing where mm-hmm. some years they don't produce many um uh, seeds, so they don't, you know, produce a lot of uh, pollen-bearing cones and, and pollinate themselves and then and produce seeds. And um, then other years they produce a ton of them. And this seems to be also related to sort of the way that they're dispersed and eaten. So there's like a, a long-haired grass mouse who gets gets in there um, and eats them. But masting is kind of useful for trees because they can sort of do everything together, which um, helps overwhelm uh, animals that would otherwise eat all of the offspring eat all of the seeds so just like put a ton of seeds out at one time the mice in the population can't eat everything and some of them make it through 
Mm-hmm. Um, and then the next year you produce nothing and then those mice kind of starve that next year and then you've got a lot, you know, it's a kind of a win for the plants. Um, the other thing that's a bit like special about the plants from how we tend to think of plants, because we often think of sort of like, you know, normal sort of flowering plants, is that they are dioecious. So they have separate trees. Some trees have male cones, some trees have female cones. There can be unisex trees. And I'm actually not sure about the one in the Kew Garden, if it was unisex, but I do know that it was at least a little bit male. And the reason I know this is because it was spurting pollen in the air while we were there. So this is what really drew my attention. Um, It's wind pollinated. It has these cones and then a gust of breeze will come past and you'll get sort of a puff. And there was just these constant puffs coming out of these these cones um, and like really... Like such visible pollen, you know, when you have, if you have allergies, you know that there's pollen in the air, but this was like a dense, thick cloud and sort of drifting (laughs) off different, you know, a huge tree with thousands of cones all over and you see a drift come off here and a little puff over there and you're really, really incredible and beautiful and impressive. Yeah. Um, The final thing I want to say, of course, uh, we should always mention, we do tend to always mention is that the trees are unfortunately endangered um logging fires grazing have all affected um their populations so it is something that we have to take care of but yeah that's the um araucaria araucana which is the monkey puzzle tree the national tree of chile diversity in the plants science so it is Pride Month all throughout June. Um, it's time to celebrate the LGBTQ plus community. And at uh, at the start of this, I have to do like a little disclaimer. Like I'm myself not really a part of the LGBTQ plus community. I'm sort of a bystander, but um, trying to be supportive and positive. Uh, and I just want to mention this here because, like, I, I, I will mention like a couple of things, uh, events, and and people that that uh, that are what is going on right now, and um, I am not myself part of the community. I want to put that out here, and I will also say a couple of like nice things about academia, but I want to make sure that it's clear that we both often criticize academia for its lack of inclusive inclusive of lack of being inclusive, um, of uh, discriminatory practices, of the hardships that people have to go through when they are not like straight white men, uh, essentially. Um, so I acknowledge all of these these problems and, and criticize them, but academia can also be a nice place. Um, and that's what I, that, that's something that will come up here. So enough for the disclaimers. Um, so it is Pride Month and um, there's a Twitter account, LGBTQ plus plant scientists, which I really recommend everyone to follow. And because of, because it's a month that celebrates like all kinds um, of, of people and events, I didn't really pick one single person. I mean, it's sort of a theme for me to pick like a large group instead of focusing on a single thing, but I think today it's okay. Um, but I'm picking up a couple of names and a couple of things that I came across here. Um, LGBTQ plus plant scientists on Twitter um, is a good place to start looking um, for specifically plant scientists uh, in, in the community. Uh, and for that, for example, I found Mehmet Kurt, um, who... Uh, talked is talking about peer review for inclusion, diversity, and equity, 
um, which is an acronym that spells PRIDE, which is a program where they are providing feedback on grant proposals for, long, for, for young LGBTQ plus people in STEM specifically. So to sort of support them, boost their numbers, make sure that when they apply for grants, they have a higher chance of actually getting them. They are offering this sort of for free um, mentorship and counseling in that pro uh, program. So we're linking the tweet that talks about that in the show notes, as, same as all other things I'm mentioning. Um, there's also like Pride in STEM uh, in general, not just for plant scientists, um, a website prideinstem.org that collects all kinds of like resources and networks and uh, opportunities to to get to know each other and and yeah build like sort of make the community visible but also allow networking uh and then there's something i think that we put, talked about last year um when it started the 500 queer scientist visibility uh, campaign 500 queer scientists mm -hmm. back then there were just um a few dozen of people uh, people in the literary and it has grown so much since then and it's a lot of fun to just like browse through it and see all of the different kinds of people that are all part of stem um, there's also you can filter through different disciplines and I had a look at, at the plant scientists and I'm just mentioning a couple of them by name because we tend to mention people here and I sort of like why not mention like a couple of people who um, wrote something on the 500 queer scientists um, website there's Anna Dai who is a plant virologist and vector biologist from the United States um, there's Pedro Sena an, an ecologist from Brazil Yolanda Caceres from an ecologist from Germany um, there's Han Tan an Assistant professor for plant genetics in the United States. And when I was reading through the stories, they have these like short bios or profiles, something that they can write about themselves. Is something um, sort of a pattern that emerged is that many of them said like uh, that their love for science and uh, like channeled them to go like pursue a career in academia and that they found a very welcoming and envi uh, environment in academia. Um, some said like academia is their safe space like uh, in society they often struggled with different things um, like with being discriminated against uh, but in academia they could share their passion for the science and connect through that connect through science instead of um, sort of through the stereotypes that some people might have about them and I quite like that idea I found it very um, sort of hopeful to the topic of today's episode that academia can be this place of acceptance it can be this place where we can connect through through our love for science through talking about facts through discussing discussing like weird intricate details about some biological or non-biological mm. system um, and we don't have to bring like we don't have to discriminate people based on their their upbringing, based on the color of their skin, based on their sexuality or gender. Um, none of that is necessary. Like I mean, it's never necessary. But specifically in science, we could like have this common ground. And unfortunately, it's not always the case, as I said in the beginning. But it can be, and it already is for some people. And I quite like that. I would like to see more of that. Um, and that's pretty much what I brought today. Um, Check out all of the links that we're putting there. I find it really, really inspiring to browse through the list of people there. Um, if you find people maybe uh, in your uh, in, in the region where you're at or in the same discipline, maybe it's also a good opportunity to connect over the science um, because some of them are like sharing some of the stuff that they work on and it sounded quite interesting. Um, many of them have, for example, also Twitter profiles linked so you can connect through that or just like follow each other. Um, and it shows that, yeah, there's there's many um, scientists in the LGBTQI community. It's not just um, a couple of them 
it's it's a lot and it's nice that 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 there are so many and maybe as like a last personal thing is also that um for me only when i entered academia i actually really got in like got personal connections to members of the lgbtqi plus community like uh before that i have to say they were very, very invisible to me and i was partly on me partly on the people i i hung around with but it was really eye-opening um to have a career in academia and get to know not only people from like different countries but also from all kinds of other different backgrounds like quite a like I've never worked with such a diverse group of people than when I was in, in, in research. And I quite like that about that. There's many things where I can rant on for ages, but I really, really enjoyed being in such a diverse um, community. And uh, I'm really thankful for that. So yeah, that's Pride Month. Check it out, support, follow, and spread the word. Happy Pride, everyone. Let's talk, talk, talk about bias, bias, bias. Hey, um, today I'm going to talk about a, a sort of article that was in The Guardian. I do think I found it via the Nature Briefing probably because that's my lazy way of doing my homework. Um, but it's not really about um, plant science or sort of our sort of experimental science, but it is about bias. And the article is by Lina, Linda Geddes, sorry, a science correspondent, and it's called Digital Forensic Experts Prone to Bias Study Shows. And the article is, is worth a read, but it's basically reporting on a study that is just recently been public, published in the Forensic Science International Digital Investigation, which again is a journal that we've not interacted with before because <laughs> it's a little bit out of our remits. Um, but it's basically what happened in the study is that they had 53 digital forensics examiners. So people sort of looking for evidence in the digital field. So, you know, like combing through hard drives and stuff to try to find evidence of, of somebody's guilt or innocence for a crime. And all of these 53 people had the same evidence files, but they then wanted to see if these people would consistently come up with the same observations and interpretations and conclusions for what they found. Um, and also if they could be biased. So they actually use the word biasability, so their ability to be biased. Um, <laughs> and they tried to bias people by um, sort of suggesting, you know, like giving contextual information so saying if they thought that there was guilt or innocence of the the person whose files were being examined and um yeah perhaps unsurprisingly the results showed that the observations were affected by bias so even looking at exactly the same data file if you said hey i think this person's guilty have a look you know they were more likely to see guilty people than if you say i think this person's innocent have a look you know this was really influencing what was found so this is not our mm -hmm. kind of science, but I do think it really strongly relates to the way we do research because um, especially in a world where it's easier to publish positive results than it is negative results and we are so invested in our own projects, there is a similar thing. You know, you you never have a full picture when you're doing experimental research. You're just doing experiments to try and fill in, like, you know, shine light on little spots of darkness. And there is the same thing where if you look at that with a certain bias, you might be more likely to come to a result than somebody that has a different bias. 
And I think that's sort of one of the reasons why... I don't know that we can really overcome that truly, but I think it's one of the reasons why it is important to sort of share your results at conferences and with people and even with people who don't agree with you and might not be very supportive and might try to poke all the holes in your interpretation because at the end of the day, that's the thing that's sort of going to help get to a better place of better science where, you know, you you because yep. there is bias and that the way to try to minimize that bias is to do more work basically um so yeah i think that's kind of an interesting study yeah. a little bit concerning but again sort of what we expect at this point but yeah i would have been surprised if they've been would have been like perfectly objective about everything if they would have just been like yeah we gave like this number of people the same files and they came with like identical results back i've been like there's something weird unless you just give them like very simple addition to do then then the outcome was to be expected to be different but yeah it's it, like it, it opens up questions in the forensics field right when it becomes like it's about the destiny of people like will they be persecuted mm. or not will they like yeah. end mm. up in jail or not yeah it's that digital um, evidence now features yeah. in around 90 percent of criminal cases so it's like a pretty big thing and I like there was a quote by, I'm not sure if it's one of the authors of the study or another scientist who was um, related, but it's Dr. Gillian Tully. And they start by saying, I cannot overemphasize the importance. And normally, like, we see this phrase so often in, in science, or at least like in science communication, where it's like, I cannot overemphasize the importance of loving monkey puzzle trees. And like, often, you know, it turns out you can overemphasize it. You just did overemphasize, like, like <laughs> this is a really cool tree. And those puffs of, of pollen coming out, like, I could watch that for 10 minutes. And I did watch that for 10 minutes, but like, you know, it, you are overemphasized. But then she carries on by saying, I cannot overemphasize the importance of forensic scientists understanding the potential for unintentional bias. So I actually think this this is true in this case. Like, bias is a huge problem, but this is, again, yeah. like, bias with, yeah, people's lives and futures in the balance, and that does seem very, very concerning. So, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, that was yeah. the, the um, digital forensics bias. So it was a very <laughs> short one today, but... That's what I came up with. Yeah. This is where the fun begins. This is where the fun begins. This is where the fun begins. Uh, I have something that was sent to us by Ryan on Twitter. A, very, a big thank you for for that. It was uh, very nice. It was actually something that came up in my, my YouTube subscriptions as well, but I was like... Eh, because it was like about slow motion of um of some grasses and often enough um slow motion videos are just pretty to look at and i had enough other stuff to to look at um that was pretty so i was like ah, i'm gonna skip that but then it was recommended to us and i had a look and didn't skip <laughs> it and it was the best thing ever it really made my day um it's a video by um, by Dustin from Smarter Every Day, a very big YouTube channel. I think most people um, have seen one uh, or another of, of the videos. Um, often very technical, like um, the Dustin has a background in engineering. Um, I think he, he he worked with like the military, and I think also with NASA or something like like major United States um, engineering. Uh, efforts that he was part of uh, and is now doing a youtube channel where he explores science and i th i found this um this video such a perfect example of science communication because it starts with an observation um that there's some kinds of grass that when you poke it 
it, it um, oh, cool. shoots out its seeds. And uh, he was like, I wanted to know why that is. And I could just Google it and look it up and, and read the answer. But I wanted to come to the conclusion myself. I wanted to figure it out myself. I wanted to be like sort of like find, like learn something by myself and then check if I'm close or far away. And I might make mistakes during the way, but it's fine. As long as I come to like a good conclusion in the end, um, it's the, the it's all about the process. It's it's fine. Um, and during that, there there was a statement. I said like he did like then these slow motion videos of these seeds dispersing. It was quite challenging because um, unlike usually he says like it's easier to to film a bullet or a, a rocket um, than these grasses because like, a yeah, bullet flies in a straight path. Themselves. Yeah. So. <laughs> constantly out of focus really hard to get them because with like these high-speed cameras have like a very narrow distance that's actually in focus um so that was really hard but then he got it and then he came up with like the perfect explanation for it it's he says like it's a reverse <laughs> banana peel slap bracelet and it sounds a little bit silly but then you look at it like you have this the seed pod and it looks like a silique from arabidopsis or like a micro like a, a much smaller pod of peas for example um and it has a stem and it has a tip. And usually when you would have a banana peel, you would peel it like, um, not often you would actually peel it from, like, from the stem towards the tip, um, but sort of you would peel it from the top to the bottom. And here it goes from the bottom to the top that it peels off. And it peels off in such a way like a, a slap bracelet would do when you like slap it across your arm. Um, mm -hmm. It makes like this tight spiral. Um, but this is doing this outward spiral and by doing that, it flings the seed out of the pods. They like they stick to the, the slap bracelet. And then as the slap bracelet gets faster by turning on itself, it ejects the seeds. Um, and then he does like some some calculations and shows that it's like a um, a function of the stickiness of the seeds, like the seeds that are like there's an optimum how sticky they can be. If they're too sticky, of course, they won't like release um, quick enough. If they are not sticky enough, then they're released too early and can't be accelerated enough. But with that, he could like show like how how fast that is. It was like an, an incredibly fast. And then in the end, he's like, now I actually looked at the paper um, <laughs> and it has been described. He makes like a small mistake in the video calling it Arabidopsis. This is not Arabidopsis. It's like a relative to Arabidopsis um, that's doing that because I was like, could could that be true? Like I've never seen Arabidopsis oh do that. Imagine how annoying that, that would be like if every time you touched around. it, it would just fling its. What a GMO nightmare as well. Yeah, yeah but yeah. like a everywhere a, in the greenhouse, um, <laughs> a safety issue for like genetically modified organisms. Yeah. Yeah. So it's actually Cardamine mm -hmm. hisuta, um, but a relative of Arabidopsis thaliana. So it's it's not too distantly related to it. Um, but yeah, so there's a paper that we're, we're linking, like the video and the paper. But I really enjoyed watching him go through the process, especially from an engineering perspective, because he was like, "I know all of the principles that are at play there." Once he could capture it on video, he could like he knew how the tension of the the seed pod would work and how the mechanism would work that they are flung off and how there's this acceleration like in a figure skater when they have like their arms wide they they turn slowly and then they pull their arms closer mm -hmm. they conserve the momentum and go faster and the, the seed pods are doing the same like they are stretched out and once they cu start curling into it themselves they decrease in radius and become faster and like all of that are very engineering 
print like top typical engineering problems um found in this like weird grass that grows in so many gardens in the united states just as a weed um and i really recommend watching that and then also looking at the paper yeah. and why i'm so excited about this is that the paper uses all of the jargon and it's like it takes a moment to understand it um they have the schematics that show how like the slap bracelet works, but they don't call it a slap bracelet. They don't call it a reverse banana peel slap bracelet. And I was like, this helps me so much to understand and remember it just by putting it into these silly words. And he actually like in the video has like a banana <laughs> and two slap bracelets attached to it and shows how they are flung off. Um, and that's why I love this video so much for being like this perfect example of communicating like sort of complicated science um, by bringing it down to something that people know uh, and therefore like telling like a story about how a specific thing in, in the world yeah, works. If, if you're not convinced so, yeah. by that, just click on the link and then link. go to eight minutes in and that will convince you to watch the rest of the video. There's like these beautiful slow motion seeds flying and this, <laughs> it's just really incredible. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And once he had figured it out, he like really could set up like a stage and... Um, control the whole system but before he would understand how it's going like he didn't know was it like shooting him from the tip or from the base or like he, when you just put your hands over it you just see the seed pot and in the next moment you see the seeds flying you don't really see what's going on with the naked eye um so yeah check it out i this really made my day it made me so happy um i feel a bit awkward because that was just such a cool example i think i have like i don't know if any of my fun facts are that fun to be honest i found something interesting <laughs> um so i was sort of just uh, scrolling through looking at plant um related publications and i saw a paper that was a review looking at the 3d genome of plants and the 3d genome is not something that i really think mm -hmm. of very much to be honest so Basically, yeah, the, the genome itself has, has structure that goes beyond what we normally think of it having, right? So you've got like different levels and the, the first is just sort of you have like genes, um, they sort of, there's ATCGs going across and they've got, um, you know, promoters, things that turn them on and off, enhancers, stuff like that around the, the bits that actually are important, the genes. Um, and then secondly, that DNA, which is like a long strand of ATCs and Gs, is wrapped around protein complexes, histones, um, to sort of put it together. And then you can also have modifications on top of this, so that like helps it be packed in a bit. But then the third level of that is that these themselves, this DNA and proteins, have to fold into chromosomes, um, which, yeah, have this complex and also dynamic structure. And chromosomes themselves, like if you stretch out the chromosome, you get like centimeters and centimeters, but they sort of fold themselves up and they're only a few micrometers in length when they're inside the cell. And this folding is really important because like if you think about a 3D shape that's all bent on itself, you know, there's some things that you just can't get to. And that's how it is in the cell. Like if things are all tightly folded up, it's really hard to access the genes there. So... 3D shapes as well as the sequences are very important in determining how an organism works, basically. And this is, yeah, something that sort of seems to be becoming like a bit more, I don't know, under the spotlight at the moment. So I saw this uh, review that had come out like at the end of, well, no, at the start of May. 
And then I was looking around, and Science also has a a paper that's just come out, which is looking at 3D genomics across the tree of life. So looking at how different organisms in in all the different kingdoms also fold their their chromosomes and the implications of that. So yeah, it's it's something. I just I thought it was interesting because it's not something I thought about really very much before, to be honest. Yeah, it's one of the principles that I identified in in biology throughout my my years working in it uh, in as a researcher is that <laughs> there's always another level of regulation. You you come like you start from like your biology class from like this very simple idea of just like at one point there's a start codon and then it the stops. gene is yeah. read and then it a protein is made. But then you have like, okay, there's a chance like you can regulate how quickly that thing is read and then you can regulate how well it binds to the RNA and you can regulate the protein afterwards and then you can regulate like the methylation of the DNA and then you can regulate how tightly it's bounded how the histones and then how they are bound together. There's always like another layer of regulation with um, that we seem to uncover. And I don't think that like <laughs> it definitely won't go indefinitely. There's just so much but, that we don't know um, still. There's so much more... Yeah, so much more of like, um, yeah, things that could explain certain effects that we see that right now we have just no idea with like the concepts that we have, which is like... I mean, one one of those fit, things that like, I really like, and it's also something that's related to that um, that I found, is this anti-sense RNA. So like, you know, our, our central dogma, what we learn in schools, you, you have DNA and something reads that DNA and makes it into like, copies it into RNA. That's the messenger, the messenger RNA. And then that is read to make a protein. But sometimes the mRNA can sort of get stopped in its track. So RNA is like a single strand and DNA is double strand, but RNA is single strand. And something that is matching it to the other side of that strand can come in and just like dock onto that mRNA. And by docking it often like can just make it impossible to make the protein or it can actually even, you know, target that mRNA to be degraded. And it's like these things are called antisense are just like come and like dock and like yoink now you're you're going down um and there was the paper i saw yeah. like recently about this is something that is modifying when plants flower based on how cold it is out so some plants like they need the cold before like to give them the single the signal that they then have to go on to flowering um in other cases obviously like cold can be a signal to like stop doing growth and I just wanted to give a shout out to the authors who have found something that regulates flowering in response to cold, and they've called it cool air. So it's one of these um, antisense mRNAs, which is called cool air, which seems also nice. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I can't wait to read up on the 3D genomics and understanding how they do it, because I think it might be interesting at one point to talk about this also like on the blog and so on um at the same time I'm a little bit terrified because it tends to get complicated like the, already, like the whole um DNA mm. methylation stuff is already sometimes a little bit um complicated to to wrap your head around it how they measure it i have another story that's about um that's not so fun um but i want to to bring it to attention i read an article on science mac about uh, um elizabeth bick she um is uh, on on Twitter, she's on, at, at Microbiome Digest on Twitter, and she's a freelance um, consultant uh, and I think scientific quality um, officer. I don't know what the right word for it is to describe it, but she's a sleuth. She looks for cheats. <laughs> yeah, exactly. She looks for 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 cheats. Um, she it's very fun to yeah. follow her on Twitter, actually. Um, 
because of the story that we're going to talk, uh, talk about today, her account is actually protected right now. So if you follow her, she first has to sort of acknowledge that you can follow her. Um, that wasn't always the case, but she sometimes just brings up these like a, a figure from a from a paper and says like this one is an easy one or this one is a hard one, and then you can look and find it's it's basically spot the difference but instead of spot the difference you're spotting the replication mm -hmm. so you might have a a gel with bands on it and you have to see that one of the bands has been like you know turned upside down and then placed in a different well or you might have a, a microscope slide with 20 different cells that are all fluorescing and you can find that actually four of those have just been copied and pasted to make it look like there's a, there's a larger number of cells it's it's like games mm -hmm. like this but it's actually has a really important cause, which is finding scientists who are, you know, deliberately creating fake images to, to show results that have not been shown in the lab. And she did that as well. Um, l like about a year ago, she started doing that uh, for Didier Raoul, um, which might have might be um, a familiar name to some people. He's a microbiologist working at the Hospital Institute of Marseille, the Mediterranean infection uh, of um, at the Hospital Institute of Marseille, a Mediterranean infection. That's the full name IHU in France, and um, the. Uh, Didier Raoul uh, became famous for suggestion, su suggesting the drug hydroxo hydroxychloroquine. Sorry, that's a lot of big words, and um, I'm a little, already a little bit tired. Um, the drug hydroxychloroquine, which is a drug that's usually used to treat malaria, he yeah. suggested to use that on COVID. And it made a, made a big fuzz in the news because it was in the early stage of the pandemic. We had no idea what we were dealing with. We, like collectively as a global society we were scrambling for solutions and this old professor from france was providing a potential solution uh, but very quickly it was it became clear that um a drug that works against malaria doesn't work against covid um uh but he still published a couple of papers about it and elizabeth bick then had a look at them and found evidence for tampered images and bad scientific conduct and she made that public with like very like clear documented um uh sort of case files there's a uh, there's a, um, a platform called pubpeer which is an online forum where scientists scientists can um like work together to to find these like um uh, cases of bad mm. scientific practice in published papers and then you have the paper and then you have the people saying like these are the things that i think are wrong with this paper this is then brought like official attention like it's 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 a whole process and it's it's part of the quality control in the scientific system and um didier raoul uh, in this um became part of like over wow. 140 different papers of his were criticized on papier by different researchers i think over 60 of those um by elizabeth bick alone um but she was always supported by many many other people as well and like they even doubled the number of the things that she found more than that was then um found by others And that in itself is sort of a sad story about um, a sci sci uh, the, the scientific system that sometimes you have these these hacks that try to publish results that simply are not true um, and that other people have to spend time to figure that out. Um, but now Didier Raoul is um, suing uh, Elizabeth Bick for harassment because he says like criticizing his papers is harassment because now he has to respond mm -hmm. to all of these claims that his papers are fraudulent. 
uh, and that's taking a lot of his time and therefore he's um, like suing her in in a French court so far there hasn't been anything happening she hasn't been cited by the French court system so it's sort of entered into the system but it's not yet that there's no no state what is prosecutor prosecutor that's um, uh, already like um, actually uh, charging uh, Elizabeth Big, but yeah, it's just it's a very sad story of um, how the scientific community or like how s- s- specific people in the scientific community can make it worse for so many people um, because she's a freelancer. She relies on being like uh, hired by journals or institutes or so for to to look like to to investigate data to either find problems or to say like look, I couldn't find any problems. So so. Um, being being sued can attack her livelihood and all she's doing is like in a very well documented case showing how problematic these papers are and in, in case of COVID and the pandemic it's like, yeah. like very very problematic if you have bad research circulating um, so yeah that's why I think it's important to talk about this and to be aware of this um, that there are uh, that these papers that, that are claiming that a malaria drug could help against corona um, and it's, it's more papers than just that like there's many papers from this research group that are problematic um but specifically about about covid it's important to know that these um these things don't really hold up and are now part of a, of yeah. a lawsuit um i have something again which is sort of like a, a one of these things where you stumble into a research area and you're like oh i'm i don't know much about this i wonder what's happening there so i found um a paper that came out in the international journal of molecular sciences which is titled sound waves promote arabidopsis saliana root growth by regulating root phytohormone content for 15 hours per day for three days and then basically compared the root growth in the control versus experimental groups and also did some measurements of um, the, the level of certain hormones in those roots. And they say that they found um, evidence that sound waves have a potential to stimulate the growth and the, the hormones and could therefore be an interesting tool for sort of stimulating um, plant growth. And it's not something... so. I remember, mm-hmm. you know, back in the day hearing these these stories of people singing singing to their plants or playing music to plants. And, you know, if you play rock music, the plants are sad. And if you play a different kind of music, the, the plants are happy. And it always seemed a bit hocus pocus and, and not super supportive. I, I do, like, of course, understand that sound is just vibrations and, you know, that's sort of a physical thing that's happening to the plant. So there does seem to be... The potential that this, like you know, of course we've we've seen this vibrations can can do something inside the plant, um, but it seems like this is also maybe a field where people are looking into it a bit more. There was also a a paper that has just come out in Plant Signaling Behavior. Again, it's not a journal that I'm super familiar with, but um, it's saying that <laughs> it's called a tuning point in plant acoustics investigation instead of a turning point. Get it? Get it? Um, and it's saying that we're sort of on this <coughs> tuning point <laughs> to from going from the question of whether plants can perceive sound to how they're doing it and, and why they're doing it and how this this um, might come into time. So also last week we had that paper where 
the buzzing of bees and of other pollinators might be like making plants juice themselves a little bit more of the nectar. So this is a thing that people seem to be interested in in the context of, you know, not just nectar, but also growth and hormones and also like volatile signals, um, defenses. We've, we've talked about this in the concept of like vibration from caterpillars biting plants, which like the vibration would be similar to the sound. Um, yeah, so I'm I'm kind of curious about this. It's not something I know very much about, and again, it's just, I'm just curious to see what's happening here in this field. I mean, it's interesting with the hundred hertz. That's like that's a very low frequencies. It's like very deep in the bass range. I think humans have a hard time actually properly hearing it. Um, but that seems like that would be something so, that's easier to like. Then you know, it's, it's sort of the the very strong treatment because it would be like a strong vibration that like, and that would be. Yeah. You know, when you first test if there's a response, you don't like lightly touch something, you punch it, and then you can sort of work your way back to the light touching. But to like to see the first result, you have to do like you often do this kind of. Yeah, but but I also think it fits with the things that you mentioned that like um, like caterpillars or other things like the vibrations that they induce, they are rather at the low end of the spectrum. They don't produce like vibrations that are like twenty thousand times a second. Day, so which would be like 20,000 hertz, which is sort of the upper end of human hearing. Um, so it makes sense. It's like it's like rather the, the slower vibrations that can be sensed by the plants um, that are already sort of on the sound spectrum, but that fits with like the, the insect induced things that we had in the past. And the whole story reminds me of um, there is this famous experiment from the Mythbusters show where they wanted to investigate whether plants would grow better or worse when you play music or when you are saying nice things or bad things and they would set up like mm -hmm. four greenhouses with like music like rock music and classical music and one where you had like a tape recording of like them saying nice things to the plants and the tape recording is of like verbally abusing the plants and you could sort of tell that they expected that there would be no difference because there's no good evidence that there would be a difference. But they did the experiment and then they saw like a major um, difference and sort of ended the episode on that. But later on, they said, like, look, we, we neglected some important controls and uh, we can't rule out that there's like other things that were a difference between those. And uh -huh. it's still no evidence that like talking nicely to your plants is better than talking, like than abusing your plants verbally. Um, so it's a question that's been even in popular media for, for a long time. Um, Personally, I abuse my plants. Like, I tell them that if they, they don't grow nicely, then I'll just throw them in the bin. And that's worked very well for me. I mean... Does it work? Like, I follow through. <laughs> so if they do... I mean, my, I, my, I treat plants <laughs> as a bit of a natural selection thing, whereas like, if, they, if they need watering every day, they're not going to survive very long under my care. Yeah, exactly. So it's like... That's part of that. It's, it's less the verbal abuse, but more like the active uh, removal of the gene pool that makes sure <laughs> yeah it's not even natural selection it's like very it's just like i'm just gonna throw this plant out and get like a different species of plants that will not die from me looking at it <laughs> the wrong way yeah i think that's all of my facts today do we want to go yeah let's let's go to the cat fact um i mean it's not really very cat related but who cares <laughs> <laughs> Cat fact. Uh, so I brought a cat fact that's not about cats, but instead about birds and magic tricks and sleight of hand. Um, 
there are these birds, they're, they're called jays. Um, it's like a crow, right? Like a magpie or a crow. Yeah. And they're also one of the model systems for intelligence, Eurasian jay. Mm. Um, they, yeah, they, they are li- look a little bit nicer than a crow, to be honest. Um, but yeah, they are also like very smart birds. And they do a thing where when they have a seed in their mouth and they see that another jay is watching, that they do a couple of pretend burials before they actually bury the seed somewhere to store it for later. So that the, the other bird that's watching can't tell when the seed is actually buried and when it's just pretend burying because it's sort of slight of mm-hmm. beak, um, <laughs> pretending oh to do a movement, um, but actually um, not doing something else. And so they thought like, so these birds, they have this mechanism of like pretending to do something to fool other birds can we do that with sleight of hand? Can we offer them a treat and do like a little magic trick where you pretend to move an object from one hand to the other, but you're actually keeping it in one hand or where you're pretending to not do much, but it ends up in the other hand. Um, So there's like three different like classical steps, like a palm transfer, um, a French drop, um, which is where you like hold something up and you grab it with your other hand. But instead of actually grabbing with your hand, you just like let it drop into the first hand so it looks the movement is like you're picking something up from one hand to the other but you're actually keeping it in the first hand all all along and then there's a third one which is called a fast pass where you just do like a little wiggle and it doesn't look like much but you're actually throwing the object from one hand to the other hand and then they had like a little worm so the point is the point is now to see if the bird can pick it up when humans are doing it to see if the bird can be fooled by that they had like a little worm and the bird wanted the worm and they would like show it the worm then they would do one of the three tricks and then would see okay, which hand the, the worm picks. And then does, does it want the worm enough to put up with seeing a magic show? Because that's a threshold <laughs> that's quite important here. Um, like, I do. do want the worm, but like they do. all my friends are doing magic right now. And honestly, it's exhausting. In, in, in one of the clips, we're linking like a New York Times article about this. In one of the clips, you can see like it get, takes the worm and immediately flies away. It's just like, I'm only putting up with magic until I get my reward and then I'm out of here. Like, <laughs> I don't want to have any sort of extras. I don't want to have like an, another trick, another I illusion. I swear to God, if you dress up like a clown again, I am out of here. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so can we can we trick the birds? No, can the birds not be tricked? No. They, That's the question, right? Um, the birds stay uh, for like the ones where you have the, the worm in your one hand and pretend to transfer to the other hand. They don't care about that. Um, they will always pick the hand that has the worm that because the worm hasn't left the hand where they saw it last. So mm-hmm. um, the, oh, yeah. the idea is that they don't really understand how hands work or they don't care how hands work. They just like see a hand, it has a worm, the hand does some wiggling and then they pick the hand that has the worm. And for us humans, we're like, oh yeah, they, he clearly put it in the other hand and we would be mm. fooled. The bird is just like, I don't know how hands work. It's still in the same hand. And fitting with that narrative is that in the third experiment where you show it in one hand and then you do like the quick movement to throw it into the other hand, the birds would then pick the first hand again, um, thinking that the worm is still there when it's not. Um, Cool. Because technically they would be able to perceive that movement. Birds can have a much higher temporal resolution than us humans. So they sort of see it in slow motion in some way. Um, But because they would have to turn their head 
they sort of lose track um, uh, and can't keep up with the fast I, I'm movement. really looking forward to the follow-up study from like the worm's point of view. <laughs> it's like, wee! As it goes to the next hand. It's like, did the worm feel like surprised when he was in the other hand? Yeah, it must, it, it must feel joy because it's not eaten when it ends up in the other hand. Well, I think like X animal smarter than you think is a fairly common headline. So I think like earthworm smarter than we think is... It's mm-hmm. got to be out there somewhere, right? Yeah. But um, yeah, that's that's essentially it. They did magic tricks to birds and figured out that the birds don't really care how human hands work and they just like remember where the worm was in which, which hand. Sorry, I just Googled earthworms smarter than we think and <laughs> are earthworms more intelligent than we thought? Study reveals that they have free will. Um, <laughs> it is the dailymail.co.uk, so... Take that with, like, not just a grain of salt, but... (laughs) Yeah. They found worms could sometimes think for themselves, but think is in a little, like, (laughs) speech before. Sorry. We have a worm composter in in the kitchen now, and uh, it seems to be that worms are very suicidal because they tend to leave the bin and then they dry out on the floor. And it's just like, you have this perfect environment for you. Why do you leave? But that's like in Australia, it's just impossible to keep your worms wet. It's like a constant struggle to <laughs> moisten your worms. <laughs> I mean, the whole container is wet enough; like it has the perfect conditions. But some worms just get out of there, crawl like like slither through a tiny gap in the box, and then die. And it's like, okay, was that worth it, worm? But yeah, so um, they might have free will, but they don't use it for any good for, to themselves. Um, so yeah I just cool. uh, recommend checking out the New York Times article because it has like nice little gifs of the birds and the sleight of hand and it looks really cool um, so <laughs> if you take anything away from that it's just like see a bird react to magic tricks <laughs> not only do I have to watch magic I have to watch a bird watch magic <laughs> Great, yeah. I like magic though Like um, I was think- really into magic as a kid yeah uh, I even had like a little like magi- magician's box, but I was like I did not understand most of the tricks as they were described in the booklet that came with it, so I couldn't really figure out how they work, or I just didn't have the dexterity in my fingers to actually do this. But yeah, yeah, this is legitimately great. Yeah. Um, so with that, I think it's time to wrap up. Yeah. Um, um, if you want to find us, we are on the Instagram and the Facebook at Plants and Pets. There, you can talk to me. On Twitter, you can talk to me. That's at Plants Pets. Please send me cool videos that I think are, are not worth it. And then I watch them. I'm like, yeah, this is actually amazing. I need more of that. You can also go to plantsandpipettes.com, um, our blog where we publish uh, stories about the world from plant science. And the most recent story is about worms, worm, worm, worm. specifically uh, specifically nematodes, um, these tiny, often microscopic worms, uh, and how plants can smell them when they're coming um you can also rate us review us share us with your friends that's always very helpful um yeah just tell people that we exist and that we talk about plants that would be great yeah that's that's always the best thing that helps us out and then also uh our opening and closing music is caravana by philip gross <laughs> goodbye uh, goodbye goodbye